good morning and it's nice to see all of you all again uh, i promise you from the next week you're going to see a lot more of our department yeah so and it begins from <laughs> this week onwards uh, i just a clarification about the two imcqs today we have included the genetics content and also the asynchronous content along with the biochemistry or the nutrition lectures that were done this week as well as in the last week okay so i today is your last day of uh, the er module yeah and yeah of course you have the exam coming up soon now i'm talking about a disorder today that is consider, considered an endocrine disorder but is also considered a metabolic disorder so we are talking about diabetes mellitus today that is both an endocrine disorder as well as a metabolic disorder so we are going to look at diabetes mellitus both in this module as well as in the next module in the next module we shall focus on <coughs> that is funny eh? having a pizza box on there <laughs> Uh, so next uh, in the next module we'll focus on the metabolic aspects of this disorder now if you think about diabetes mellitus the definition of diabetes mellitus is any condition which causes hyperglycemia typically in, in more than on more than one occasion and it is it could result because of a defect in insulin secretion or reduced insulin secretion or a defect in the action of insulin or more commonly that is seen in type 2 diabetes mellitus it is usually a combination of both of these now the rise of diabetes has markedly increased with the incidence of obesity and if you look at the world popul population of diabetics it is quite high so it is important as a physician any kind of physician you need to know at least the basic aspects of diabetes mellitus yeah so note that it can affect multiple organ systems and this incidence and uh, the rise in incidence along with obesity is sometimes was called as diabetesity yeah with the higher incidence of obesity there was a higher incidence of diabetes mellitus we'll briefly look at the types of diabetes mellitus type 1 diabetes mellitus about 10% of your of the patients are have type 1 diabetes mellitus previously known as insulin dependent diabetes mellitus The second group is type 2 diabetes mellitus about 90% of your patients belong to this group previously called as non insulin dependent diabetes mellitus where insulin resistance is what is predominant yeah so insulin resistance is the main factor which results in hyperglycemia now the other two forms of diabetes mellitus gestational diabetes mellitus is when there is hyperglycemia only during pregnancy but following delivery there is normalization of the blood glucose level so that is gestational diabetes mellitus it's been observed gestational diabetes mellitus is important to identify and to manage because there has been observed a higher incidence of fetal malformations yeah and you just saw that in the pregnancy and lactation lecture now the last form is secondary diabetes secondary diabetes forms a very small proportion of the diabetic population where the hyperglycemia is not due to insulin as such but is due to the presence of the counter regulatory hormones the counter regulatory hormones like too much secretion of cortisol like cushing syndrome or patients on treatment with cortisol growth hormone as acromegaly glucagon secreting tumors 
So basically, there is an increase in the counter-regulatory hormones which result in hyperglycemia. Besides these, the last one is hemochromatosis, where there is destruction of the beta cells of the pancreas due to too much of iron. Yeah? So we are not going to look at these two in much more detail. We are going to focus on the first two types of diabetes mellitus that are more common in the population. Of course, about 90% belong to the second group. Now, type 1 diabetes mellitus is caused by... So basically what happens is there is initially a viral infection. A few weeks later, there is what's called as autoimmune destruction of the beta cells of the pancreas. So the beta cells of the pancreas are now recognized as a foreign cell. And what happens is antibodies are created against it and there is destruction of the beta cells. And as a result of destruction of the beta cells, there is a marked reduction in insulin secretion. So basically it is destruction or autoimmune destruction of the beta cells. And this is an important feature. There is a, a marked reduction in insulin secretion. So patients with type 1 diabetes mellitus have low levels of insulin on diagnosis. Yeah? So on presentation, they typically present with low levels of insulin. Yeah? So that is like a cardinal feature of type 1 diabetes. Typically presents in young adults or during adolescence. Yeah? So that is the most common age group where you find type 1. And presentation is usually up abrupt. Yeah? Now, management of this is lifelong insulin. Yeah? You can't use any drugs to stimulate the beta cells of the pancreas. You have to substitute insulin. Yeah? So lifelong insulin to prevent the complications of diabetes mellitus. Now, if you think about presenting features, now, most of these are common to both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, but the, the thirst, the hunger, the polyuria, the three polys, polyuria, polydipsia, and polyphagia, these are much more characteristic or much more seen in type 1 diabetes mellitus. That's due to the abrupt, abrupt reduction in insulin secretion. Now, we'll try to explain why is there all of these, the three polys, you know? Dehydration and, of course, decreased immunity resulting in higher levels of or higher incidence of infections. So the three polys, we'll try to explain each of them. Weight loss is typically seen, and that is because of the phenomenon of accelerated lipolysis. This is much more characteristic of type 1 diabetes mellitus. Now, why is there accelerated li lipolysis? Insulin normally is required for triacylglycerol formation in the adipose tissue. In the absence of insulin, what happens is there is increased breakdown of triacylglycerol in the adipose tissue. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is there is breakdown or lipolysis or breakdown of the fat stores. Now, if you think about the protein metabolism, what happens to the body protein or the muscle protein is in the presence, insulin is considered an anabolic hormone. So in the presence of insulin, you have more entry of amino acids into the muscle cells, and there is increased synthesis of tissue proteins. Whereas in the absence of insulin, the opposite takes place. That means there is less entry of amino acids into the muscle and more breakdown of uh, muscle protein. In other words, there is uh, what's called as muscle proteolysis, and this contributes to negative nitrogen balance. That means there is basically loss of muscle or tissue protein. Yeah? <clears throat> Both of these are together contributing to the weight loss. Weight loss is typically more 
commonly seen in type 1 diabetics. Yeah. So next we'll try to explain why is there hyperglycemia. Now in a type 1 diabetic, the hyperglycemia is because of beta cell destruction and less of insulin secretion. Now what are the normal functions of insulin? Yeah. You, so um, basically it affects all three metabolism and we are going to pay more attention to all of them in the next module. So let's try to explain polyuria. Yeah? I'll come back to uh, hyperglycemia a little later. Um, why is there glycosuria or polyuria? Now if you think about, this is from your CPR module, glucose is completely reabsorbed. In a normal person, glucose is completely reabsorbed from the renal tubule and if you check for urine glucose, you find that glucose is normally absent in the urine. Yeah? So you're, you, you remember that, right? What happens in a diabetic is there is more filtered load. So there is a high, higher concentration of glucose in the blood. And as a result, there is more filtration of glucose. Now, all of this cannot be reabsorbed by the renal tubule. In other words, the blood glucose exceeds the reabsorptive capacity of the renal tubule. And as a result, it tends to be lost in the urine. In other words, it is, there is glycosuria or glucosuria. Now, glucose, remember, is a carbohydrate. It is osmotically active. It binds to water and will be lost in the urine. And that is the explanation for polyuria. So basically, what, why is there polyuria? Is because there is a large filtered load of glucose and the renal tubule is now almost stressed out. It is trying to maximally reabsorb the glucose, but the, the glucose load in the tubule is much more than the reabsorptive capacity. Now, a typical test to identify glucose in the urine is a dipstick test, and you find a change in the color in the presence of glucose in the urine. Presence of glucose in the urine and polyuria is, more, um, is, is seen in both kinds of diabetics, yeah? type 1 as well as type 2 diabetic, whenever the blood glucose level is more than 180 milligrams per deciliter. And remember this, this name, right? That means it is more than the renal threshold for glucose. Yeah? So 180 milligram per deciliter, that's the blood glucose level beyond which glucose will start appearing in the urine. Yeah? Now remember that glucosuria is a common feature of both type 1 and type 2 diabetes mellitus. And this is just review from what you did before. The reabsorption of glucose is by SGLT2, which is, which is considered as a classical secondary active transporter, similar to the one present in the, um, in the GIT. It's slightly different, yeah? so called as SGLT2. Now, presence of or ex uh, excretion of large amounts of glucose in the urine makes the urinary tract susceptible to infections. So many of your diabetic patients men can come with recurrent UTI or urinary tract infections. And that's because they, are, they have a higher risk due to presence of glucose or because of glycosuria. Now next we'll move on to type 2 diabetes mellitus. Now type 2 diabetes mellitus, the etiology or pathogenesis is a little more complex. It's also called, it was also called as non-insulin dependent diabetes mellitus. The most important risk factors for the development of type 2 diabetes mellitus is what's called as central obesity or abdominal obesity, which is a component of the metabolic syndrome, also called as syndrome X. 
This is also known as the insulin resistance syndrome. Okay. Besides that, your lifestyle, sedentary lifestyle predisposes to type 2 diabetes mellitus. And of course, as we age, we become more prone for type 2 diabetes mellitus. Now, basically what happens, so we are trying to explain the term insulin resistance. So what does this term insulin resistance mean? Now, insulin resistance is a state where the target tissues for insulin, so there are basically three target tissues that you are thinking about. One is the liver, the second one is the adipose tissue, and the muscle. So the liver, adipose tissue, and the muscle, these three tissues are not responding to the levels of insulin that are secreted by the beta cells of the pancreas. Yeah? So there is what's called, this is the phenomenon of insulin resistance. We are going to explain a little more about that in, as we go on through the lecture. Now, it's not only that. So there is the target tissues are not responsive to insulin. Remember, with time, what happens is there is what's called as beta cell fatigue. And with time, the beta cells are not secreting as much insulin as in a normal person. So it's basically a combination of the peripheral tissues are not responding to insulin, the, the levels of insulin that normally result in normal blood glucose levels. But besides that, there is also reduced levels of insulin secretion by the beta cells of the pancreas. So it's a combination of both of these, and that is what makes it much more complex. Now, typically, in the early stages of the disorder, you can treat them with oral hypoglycemic agents, which usually target on the insulin resistance, a few drugs which target insulin resistance, or there are a few drugs which increase or stimulate the beta cells of the pancreas to secrete more of insulin. However, in the later stages of the disorder, as the beta cell fatigue becomes more and more, and well, you may have to use insulin in the later stages of the disorder. Now, what is concerning nowadays is with the incidence or with the increased incidence of childhood obesity, what is observed is previously what was seen like 20 years ago, what was seen was if a child has diabetes mellitus, most likely it was type 1. But with the incidence of childhood obesity, with the increase in incidence of childhood obesity, what has happened now is there is what this phenomenon of insulin resistance, which is more characteristic in the older population, population, you find that in the younger generation too. And that is kind of concerning. Yeah? So obesity in children is a risk factor for this kind of diabetes. In, if you observe this kind of diabetes in a younger child, you think about central obesity as the risk factor. So what is the mechanism of insulin resistance? Yeah? Now, insulin resistance is a very, you know, quite a complex phenomenon. So with time, we have learned a few things that contribute to insulin resistance. Now, we just try to, so we explain what is insulin resistance. That is, the target tissues are not responding to insulin. Now, if you want to numerically define it, it is said that if a person's requirement of insulin is more than 200 units of insulin per day, so if a person requires more than 200 units of insulin per day, he is said to be in an insulin-resistant state. Yeah. Now, some of the risk factors is obesity, typically. So obesity with waist-to-hip ratio of more than one, that is abdominal or central obesity. So that is considered as the most important risk factor for the development of insulin 
<coughs> resistance. Now it's observed that in, so when you look at central obesity, you find that there is in the peripheral tissues, there is decreased number of insulin uh, receptors. And besides that, there is also what's called as a post-receptor failure. So you, you have the tyrosine kinase insulin receptor, but there is something that does not happen. So signal transduction is also affected in a patient with type 2 diabetes mellitus or in a patient with insulin resistance. Yeah. So when the insulin resistance, the most important risk factors are, are given here. Now when a person has insulin resistance, the beta cells respond by secreting more of insulin. Now at this stage, the blood glucose level may be within normal limits. Yeah? But after some time, you will find that the blood glucose level is no longer within the normal limit. Yeah? It is in, in this, you know, the gray range of between 100 to 126 milligram per deciliter. That is what's called as pre-diabetes, sometimes called as impaired glucose tolerance. Now, at this point, most of the patients, you know, it's very tough to identify at this time. So most of the patients are asymptomatic at this time, so they may not come to you. With time, what happens is the beta cells keep secreting insulin, and with time, what happens is there is what's called as beta cell fatigue. So basically, it's insulin resistance that is contributing to beta cell fatigue and the development of frank type 2 diabetes mellitus, in which you find consistent elevation in blood glucose, the fasting blood glucose of more than 126 milligrams per deciliter. Okay? So that is what we want you all to note. Now, why is there insulin resistance? Yeah? Many factors have been said to be contributory. Now, if you think about adipocyte or adipose tissue, typically the adipose tissue around the waist or the adipose tissue around um, the adipose tissue that forms the central or uh, responsible for the waist circumference, this kind of adipose tissue is considered as an endocrine organ too. Yeah? And why is it an endocrine organ? Now, as the adipocyte enlarges, note that it secretes leptin, which is required for insulin sensitivity. It's also required for maintenance uh, of the weight. Now, as your adipose tissue enlarges, note that there is reduced secretion of adiponectin, which is another hormone that is secreted by the adipose tissue. So there is reduction in the levels of adiponectin, and this is said to be contributory to the development of insulin resistance. Besides that, pro-inflammatory cytokines, which basically are going to affect the beta cells of the pancreas, and therefore there is going to be less secretion of insulin. Now, angiotensinogen is contributing to the increased blood pressure that is seen in patients with uh, central obesity or metabolic syndrome. And, of course, it has some coagulation. Uh, it's usually associated with some coagulation defects too. Yeah? So basically we want you all to concentrate on high levels of leptin and the low levels of adiponectin. Now besides that, so reduced adiponectin and elevated levels of leptin. Besides that, it's also observed that in insulin resistance, what happens is the triacylglycerol in the adipose tissue is broken down into free fatty acids. And if you look at an insulin-resistant subject, you will typically find high levels of free fatty acid in the circulation. Now, these free fatty acids are considered to be toxic to the beta cell. And therefore, they contribute to the beta cell fatigue with time. Yeah? Now, besides that, what has also been observed is there is reduced secretion of 
a hormone called as glucagon-like peptide 1, GLP-1, which is one of the hormones which belongs to the class of incretin. So basically what does this hormone do is it acts on the beta cells and stimulates the beta cells to secrete insulin. Yeah? So it's observed that there is low levels of GLP or incretin in patients with type 2 diabetes mellitus. Yeah? And we have talked about the pro-inflammatory cytokines which basically contribute to the development of insulin resistance. Yeah? Now if you ask me 20 years ago, it was like one or two only and that too maybe. But nowadays we know many more factors that are contributing to the actual insulin resistance. Okay? So we talked about insulin resistance. Let's talk about why the beta cells become fatigued or why is there dysfunction or reduced secretion of insulin by the beta cells. Now in the initial stages of the disorder, I just look at this graph. So this is a normal person. This is a secretion of insulin along with the meals. Yeah? Now note that in an insulin resistant subject, there is much higher levels of secretion of insulin. The red line indicates the higher levels of insulin secretion by, uh, in a patient with insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome. Yeah? Now, even though there is, so note that to maintain the normal blood glucose level, the amount of insulin secretion is much more than in a normal subject. Yeah? Now, with time, what happens is, so we've talked about the toxic factors which act on the beta cells of the pancreas. There is reduction in the secretion of insulin. And this, at this time, you will find that the blood glucose level is no longer within the normal limits, but is slightly above the normal limits. And this is the pre-diabetes stage that we are going to come back in the end of the lecture. To, you need to know how to identify the pre-diabetic stage, because at that stage, you need to make the appropriate modifications, weight modification, lifestyle modifications, behavior modifications, so that you can postpone the onset of beta cell fatigue and postpone the onset of diabetes mellitus or frank diabetes mellitus. Okay? So this is, this is basically a graph which describes the blood glucose level. So, so note that the blood glucose level is normal. However, there is some amount of insulin resistance and therefore there is more secretion of insulin by the pancreas. Yeah? So this is indicating the amount of insulin secretion but the blood glucose level is within normal. Now this is the onset of diabetes mellitus. Note the amount of insulin. The amount of insulin secretion at the time of diagnosis may be high. Now note the time just before that. The blood glucose level is more than 100 but less than 126. So this is your critical area and this is called as the pre-diabetic pre stage. Typically it about 5 to 10 years after the onset of pre-diabetes is the development of diabetes. You know? And you want to prolong that by introducing lifestyle modification at the pre-diabetes stage. Now, most of the times, at the time of diagnosis, you see the patient somewhere, you know, anywhere along this spectrum. So if you measure the insulin levels in a patient with type 2 diabetes mellitus at the time of diagnosis, it may be high if you have identified them immediately somewhere here. So if you, if you identify them somewhere here, then it may be high. It may be normal if you identify them here, or it may be low. And that is an important difference between type 1 versus type 2. In type 1, insulin levels are always reduced. Yeah? They are un invariably reduced. 
So what are the presenting features of type 2 diabetes mellitus? Now, type 2 diabetes mellitus was called as the silent killer, you know, because it is so asymptomatic. The onset of symptoms is not as dramatic as in a patient with type 1 diabetes mellitus. Most often, the hyperglycemia is present many years before the onset or before the diagnosis. Many patients, I've, I've seen some of my friends who have had frequent changes in the glasses. Yeah? They didn't know what it was. There was not much, nothing else. Yeah? And they checked the blood glucose. It was high. So that could be one, one manifestation. Or repeated instances of infections or polyuria, polydipsia, which is less common. Nocturia is what you might want to look for when there is higher incidence of um, passing urine, especially at night. You know? Now, why is there hyperglycemia? Many students tend to get confused with this. Okay? So let's spend some time with why is there hyperglycemia in a patient with, be it type 1, or type 2 diabetes mellitus. The mechanism of hyperglycemia is still the same. Now, if you think about the normal action of insulin, so whenever you think about hyperglycemia, I want you all to go back and think about what is the normal action of insulin. So insulin acts on the liver to reduce the output of glucose by the liver. How does it do that? It inhibits gluconeogenesis, it inhibits glycogen breakdown, and it reduces the output of glucose by the liver. So that's the normal action of insulin. Besides that, insulin also has a role on the adipose tissue and the muscle, and it increases the uptake of glucose from the blood in the adipose tissue and the muscle. And this is via the GLUT4, which is the insulin-dependent transporter. So basically, by action on the liver and on the peripheral tissues, insulin reduces the blood glucose level. Now let's see what is going to happen in a patient with diabetes mellitus, be it type 1 or type 2. So the first action will not take place. So what happens now is in the absence of insulin or when insulin is not effective, insulin increase or absence of insulin increases the glucose output from the liver. So basically what's happening in the liver is there's going to be more production of glucose by the liver, even though there is hyperglycemia because there is no feedback, there is no insulin to regulate the output of glucose by the liver. So basically, the processes that are going to be activated is gluconeogenesis as well as glycogen breakdown. Gluconeogenesis becomes more important. Besides that, on the adipose tissue and the muscle, there is reduced uptake. And as a result of combination of both of these, so the liver keeps putting glucose into the blood, and the peripheral tissues stop accepting glucose from the blood. And as a result, the blood glucose level is elevated. So hyperglycemia is because of all of these and along with that remember there is always going to be reduced secretion of insulin from the pancreas so these are the three main students tend to get very confused with this with all these so so try to think about the normal action so insulin is absent so what is going to be activated is the liver there is no hold on the production of glucose so it keeps producing more and more glucose because it has no one to tell it to stop yeah? So you have to think about the absence of insulin that is activating the production of glucose by the liver. Okay? So all these factors together, remember it's both in type 1 and type 2 diabetes mellitus. Okay? So try to answer this question.
two more seconds. You want more time? Okay, three more seconds. You good? Yeah, can we look at the answer? Yes? <laughs> okay, so once I hear talk from that side, maybe I can, yeah? <laughs> okay, now, so this is an obese patient with type 2 diabetes mellitus. So what is the answer here? What, is, what happens to adiponectin secretion? It's reduced. Adiponectin is reduced. What happens to leptin? Once the adipocyte increases in size, that is increased leptin secretion. What happens to the free fatty acid levels? And that is an important sign of insulin resistance. That is one of the lab indicators of insulin resistance, the high levels of free fatty acids. And is being increasingly used in the, in the clinical setting to identify the presence of free, um, insulin resistance in, a, in an obese subject. So what do you think is happening to GLUT4 in the muscle? There is actually less number of GLUT4 in the muscle and the adipose tissue. And what happens to glucose output by the liver? It is actually increased. Okay? So there is increased glucose output by the liver. But this is good. I'm, I'm very happy. You know? Okay. So again, I'm trying to repeat here. So for those of you who don't like repetition, just shut off for some time. <laughs> yeah? Hyper, hyperglycemia is because of increased output of glucose by the liver and reduced number of GLUT4. Hyperglycemia has resulted in glucosuria. Remember, glucose is osmotically active, results in polyuria. Now, when you lose large amounts of water, it can stimulate the thirst center, and that is the basis of polydipsia. Yeah? I think you've studied that, so we, I'm not going to go into too much about that. And dehydration. Now, hyperglycemia, as such, is said to affect the T-cell function. T-cell. Remember, I'm talking about both... Uh, type 1 and type 2 diabetics. So presence of hyper... This is something different, yeah, that I haven't talked about till now. So presence of hyperglycemia, high blood glucose levels in the blood, is said to affect the T-cell function or immunity or cell-mediated immunity and therefore there is higher risk of infections as well as delayed wound healing in especially in uncontrolled diabetics, yeah, in uncontrolled diabetics. And besides that, there is negative nitrogen balance, more commonly seen in type 1. Accelerated lipolysis, more commonly seen in type 1. And both of these contribute to weight loss. Sometimes type 2 diabetics may also have weight loss. That, that just means the beta cell is too much. You know, think about very low levels of insulin secretion due to beta cell fatigue. Yeah? So most likely it is the later stages of type 2 diabetes mellitus. Okay. So that is what we have been seeing till now. Now next we move on to what are the changes in lipids? What, what changes in lipid profile happens in patients with type 2 diabetes mellitus? Now many lipoprotein abnormalities are commonly observed. Basically you have to think about uh, an atherogenic profile. So having diabetes mellitus predisposes to having the atherogenic profile and the presence of the insulin resistance syndrome is not helping it. The presence of insulin resistance is facilitating the development of the atherogenic profile. So there is going to be, so when you think about atherogenic profile, if you think about what happened last term, there is low levels of HDL, increased LDL of the small variety, the small dense which is highly atherogenic, and also there is increased VLDL. So you remember this enzyme? from last term, lipoprotein lipase, which is present in the endothelium of the blood vessels and breaks down the tag in VLDL. Yeah? 
Now, lipoprotein lipase requires insulin for its activity. So when insulin is not as active or when there is insulin resistance, what happens is lipoprotein lipase is not as active and therefore VLDL tends to be present in higher levels in patients with diabetes mellitus. Yeah? Now we have also talked about the increasing circulating free fatty acid levels and that's because the insulin resistance or the absence of insulin is facilitating the breakdown of triacylglycerol in the adipose tissue increasing free fatty acid levels in the blood. Now, I would like you all to differentiate between VLDL, which has TAG. So TAG is different from free fatty acids. Free fatty acids are coming from the breakdown of adipose tissue, TAG. Whereas if you measure what's called a serum triacylglycerol, it's, you're mainly measuring the triacylglycerol present within the lipoprotein, that is VLDL. Okay? So please note the distinction between serum triacylglycerol versus serum free fatty acids. Yeah. Free fatty acids is basically coming from the adipose tissue. Breakdown of tag in the adipose tissue gives you free fatty acids. Now, two important markers of insulin resistance that, have, that are used increasingly in the clinical lab are indicated here. One is increased levels of free fatty acid. The second one is the tag to HDL ratio. Yeah. And that is also quite a good indicator of insulin resistance. Yeah? So when you find high tag to HDL ratio, again, that indicates low activity of lipoprotein lipase. Okay? So lab tests for the diagnosis, when you find consistently elevated fasting blood glucose of more than 126, typically more than one occasion, or sometimes random blood glucose with any one of the symptoms that we just described before, Nowadays, HbA1c is also used for the diagnosis. So in any patient, if you find an HbA1c of more than 6.5, that is a diagnostic criteria for diabetes mellitus. We'll describe more about the glucose tolerance test, which is considered as the gold standard. So anytime the two-hour plasma glucose is more than 200, we define that the patient has diabetes mellitus. But the GTT, instead of using for the diagnosis of diabetes mellitus, is more commonly used for the identification of patients with pre-diabetes and gestational diabetes mellitus. Okay. HbA1c, I'm not going to talk about it much because you have already seen what is HbA1c. Glucose, when you have high levels of glucose in the blood, it links to hemoglobin, and that is an indicator of the level of blood glucose. Yeah? And higher the HbA1c, it is seen there is higher incidence of the complications. Yeah? And it's typically used to identify whether the dose of insulin or the, dose, the drug dose is sufficient to maintain normal blood glucose level. And typically, it, you can identify the glycemic control over the past three to four months. Yeah? That's approximately the lifespan of the RBCs. Okay? We look at GTT. Now, GTT, what you basically do is give a standard load of, okay, give a standard load of glucose. Then, uh, before you give a standard load of glucose, measure the blood glucose level. Give a standard load, typically about 75 grams, and then estimate the blood glucose every half hour until two hours. Yeah. So, fasting state, give the load, and every half hour until two hours. Now, typically, two parameters are looked at. One is the fasting. If the fasting blood glucose is more than 126, it is diabetic. 
And if the two hour is more than 200, 200 or more, it is considered diabetic. So patient three has diabetes mellitus. So we're not so much concerned about that. Let's look, so normal person should have normal fasting that is less than 100 milligram per deciliter and two hour should be less than 140. So 140, less than 140 is considered normal somewhere here, yeah, 140. So that is considered, so the blue patient or patient one is a normal patient. Now let's concentrate on the green patient here. Fasting blood glucose is somewhat normal, less than 100. You give him an oral load of glucose and note the two-hour blood glucose level, it is more than 140. And this is the pre-diabetic. This is the pre-diabetic that we are going to talk about more on the next slide. Yeah? So patient two here, or the green line, indicates the pre-diabetic stage, sometimes referred to as impaired glucose tolerance. Okay? And patient three is frank diabetes mellitus. So most often, GTT is best used for this patient in green or the pre-diabetic stage. Yeah. Now, basically, if you look at the pre-diabetes, the definition of pre-diabetes, there are basically three. It can be one of the three. It can be the fasting blood, blood glucose is consistently between 100 to 125. So that is considered as the gray area or the pre-diabetic range. So that's called sometimes as impaired fasting glucose. Or it can be a two-hour post-glucose tolerance test of levels between 140 to 200. So anything more than 140, but less than 200. Anything more than 200 is a frank diabetic. So between 140 to 200. Yeah? That is your patient two on the previous slide. Or HbA1c, which is less than a diabetic range. So for diagnosis of diabetes, I think it's about 6.5%. But if you have anything less, 5.5 I think is normal, or 5.6 is normal. So anything more than 5.6. Again, this is the gray area that has been defined as pre-diabetic. Now why is the identification of pre-diabetes so important is if you identify them and advise lifestyle modifications, sometimes even drugs can be prescribed, especially if, if they have two, slightly higher levels. And if it is consistently present, so you can prolong the onset or postpone the onset of frank diabetes mellitus. Okay? So this can be an important thing, especially for family physicians. Yeah. So what are the lab tests for long-term control? You want to look at the glycemic control, fasting, postprandial is two hours after a normal meal, glycated hemoglobin, we have also talked about that. You want to check for the lipid profile because test for the lipid profile will give you an indication of the development of macrovascular complications, that is atherosclerotic complications. And we have talked about all of this. And if you want to check for renal involvement, which is basically nephropathy, you can check for presence of albumin in the urine. Very low levels of albumin is an earliest indicator of type 2, uh, sorry, of um, renal involvement yeah, in both type 1 and type 2 diabetics. And if the patient has renal failure, of course, you want to look at the serum creatinine levels. Okay? The same thing is on the next slide. So... I won't spend too much time on this. Okay? Now in the next part of the lecture, let's look at the management of diabetes mellitus. Now we shall focus on the nutrition therapy, which is together called as medical nutrition therapy. 
So basically, what are the dietary modifications that you would advise? Weight optimization or weight reduction to bring the BMI within normal limits. And finally, exercise and lifestyle modifications. And what are the uses? What, why should we advise these? With, with, you, know, it, you almost have to repeatedly advise them over and over again. Because once a patient is identified as diabetes mellitus, he is going to be diabetic for life. Okay? So it's, it's like a lifestyle thing that you have to keep advising them to make sure that they are compliant with the therapy. It's not about drugs only. Yeah? Drugs are important too. But, so we will just touch on the, all of these, but I want you all to highlight more on the dietary and the lifestyle modifications that are key for management of patients for, with, uh, with diabetes mellitus. Okay. So when you think about medical nutrition therapy, so you want to think about, so ideal medical nutrition therapy should, you have to look at the glycemic control or metabolic control by checking the plasma glucose and HbA1c repeatedly. You want to check for renal function and retinal function or development of complications. Make sure that to avoid the development of diabetic foot. Blood pressure management becomes especially important in patients with insulin resistance. Yeah? Because insulin resistance syndrome, one of the components of the insulin resistance syndrome is blood pressure yeah, or uh, hypertension. Cardiovascular complications are very, very common. And these are one of, uh, cardiovascular complications is one of the most important causes of death in patients with diabetes mellitus, especially type 2 diabetes mellitus. So you want to look at the lipid profile and patient, uh, pay attention to the diet of the patient. And of course, continuous monitoring of height, weight, and the base, uh, body mass index or the BMI. Now what are the dietary modifications you will advise re with regard to carbohydrates, dietary carbohydrates? So we talked about the blood glucose level being high due to increased liver production. We talked about peripheral tissues are not taking up glucose and there is decreased insulin secretion. So all of these are contributing to increase blood glucose level. Now besides that, there is also another factor which tends to increase your blood glucose level, and that is carbohydrates in the diet. So the whole point of reducing the carbohydrates in the diet in a patient with type 1 or 2 diabetes mellitus is to avoid the rapid increase in the blood glucose level. Yeah? So you're trying to minimize the glucose entry from the intestine, yeah? or the glucose load from the intestine. So <clears throat> Try to advise high glycemic index diet and reduce the amount of refined carbohydrates. Teach them carbohydrate counting, yeah, or cal sometimes called as calorie counting, carb counting or calorie counting. Dietary lipids. Now, basically, in a patient with diabetes mellitus, we've spoken about the atherogenic profile. So when you talk about uh, modification of dietary lipids, you basically, it is the same advice that you give in a patient with cardiovascular disease. And you're already familiar with that in the last term. So reduction of dietary cholesterol, no trans fat, Mediterranean diet to increase the monounsaturated fatty acid content, higher omega-3, and if they are hypertensive, then you may want to reduce the sodium content of the diet. Yeah? Now besides that, you also may want to increase the dietary fiber content. This basically has more than one effect. It helps in weight management. 
it also helps to reduce glucose absorption from the intestine. Yeah. Besides that, it's also said to improve your blood cholesterol levels. Yeah. So this you have already seen, so we won't spend too much time on it. Weight management. So with optimal weight, what happens is there is improvement of insulin resistance. So patients have to be taught. Yeah, it requires a lot of patience on the part of the nutritionist as well as the physician. They have to be taught meal planning and have to be shown smaller, you know, smaller cups for meal portion size. Yeah. So if they say one cup, I think it's best you look at the cup. Yeah. Before. Yeah. Because I've seen so many patients with that. Yeah. They 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 have a uh, distorted view of the cup. So you want to look at. Yeah. Now the next thing is lifestyle and behavioral modifications. Now, improvement in physical activity improves in insulin sensitivity and that's by increasing lean body mass. It also, the uptake of glucose when you exercise is independent of insulin. Yeah? And that is what we're trying to use in a patient with diabetes when you want to try to advise diet. Besides that, there is redistribution of body fat. Yeah, so there is reduction in central ob obesity, of course, improvement of blood pressure control, and there is improvement in TAG and HDL. Again, you're trying to target insulin resistance. You're trying to improve insulin resistance by doing all of that. And, and you will see that there are signs of improvement of insulin resistance. Yeah? The body becomes more sensitive to insulin when you exercise. Yeah? For those of you who are interested, you can look at all of these articles that have been hyperlinked. So, because a lot of, you know, sometimes as physicians, we tend to forget the importance of diet and physical activity. Yeah? Especially for a sedentary patient, you may want to improve this. And the, this will improve the uh, glycemic control over long periods of time. Okay? Pharmacotherapy, you've already learned about sulfonylurea, which basically activate or stimulate the beta cells of the pancreas to secrete insulin. Yeah? So you've seen about that under hypoglycemia. The newer drugs are incretins. So incretins we've seen uh, which stimulate again the beta cells to secrete more of insulin. The next group of drugs improve insulin sensitivity and under that we, we don't expect you to uh, read a lot about this because you have pharmacology coming up in a year. So just, just for people who are very interested, because diabetes is quite common in the population. So if, if any, anyone in your family is asking about it, this is just for your knowledge. So basically, these are drugs which improve insulin resistance. The newer group of drugs is which reduce dietary carbohydrate absorption. Yeah? Basically, they are amylase inhibitor, amylase inhibitors. Okay. So sulfonylurea acts to s stimulate um, secretion from the pancreas, whereas met metformin improves insulin resistance. Okay? Insulin therapy, if you think about it, there are two kinds. One is called a standard versus intensive. Now, standard insulin therapy, you will observe that HbA1c levels are higher. That means the blood glucose is not brought you know, very low. With intensive insulin therapy, they get lower HbA1c levels, that means lower incidence of complications, but there is higher risk of hypoglycemia. Yeah? So you want to talk to your patient whether they want to go towards intensive insulin therapy or do they want the standard insulin therapy. 
Yeah? The standard therapy has higher risk of the long-term complications, microvascular, mi macrovascular, but there is lower risk of hypoglycemia. Yeah? So depending on the patient preference and depending on their compliance, you want to identify what kind of insulin therapy do you want for a specific patient. So type 1 and type 2 diabetes mellitus, we, I think we've talked about all of these, so just pay attention to both of them and, and note that, note the importance of, so note that the drugs are somewhat hidden, so it's more like dietary modification and lifestyle modification along with drugs, yeah? never forget them. Yes. So try to answer this question. So Dr. May is here for the last lecture. Yeah? Now, the last two slides in this uh, lecture are, are self-study questions, okay? So it's something that you will see commonly in, in practice. So, and for most of them, you know the answers now. And I think it's for all, but I'm not very sure. But if you don't find answer to one or two, just let me know so that I can edit it and for the next term, yeah? But, but most of it, I think you should be able to answer with the, how many, six, no, eight months of... <laughs> Med school, you should be able to answer most of the questions, yeah? So, uh, did we get this answer? Yes. So, that is your insulin levels, yeah? Whereas in type 2 diabetics, it, it could be high, normal, or low. So, hyperglycemia, HbA1c levels, ABC is seen in both type 1 and type 2 diabetics. BMI in the obese range is more common in type 2. Insulin resistance is more commonly seen in type 2. Yeah, so what is in type 1 is the insulin levels. Okay. So we'll see you again at 11 a.m. And thank you for patiently listening. Thank you.